Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Ian Lustig to talk about the idea of a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Ian Lustig, and no, we aren't related, our last names are spelled differently, is the author of an important book titled Paradigm Lost. From Two-State Solution to One-State Reality, and it's the focus of our conversation today. He holds the Bess W. Hyman Chair in the Political Science Department of the University of Pennsylvania, where he teaches Middle Eastern politics, comparative politics, and computer modeling. Paradigm Lost is an important book and a profoundly challenging one. It presents an argument that not everyone is going to agree with. The idea that a two-state resolution to the Israel-Palestine conflict is no longer possible is not really a new one. It has been, after all, a quarter century since the Oslo Agreements, and pessimism seems to reign. But Lustig offers two powerful but potentially controversial ideas about the failure of the two-state solution. First, he places the blame directly on Israel's settlement project and its territorial maximalism, which has its roots in the history of the entire 20th century conflict. For instance, he points to Zev Jabotinsky's notion of the Iron Wall, the idea that Arabs would only negotiate with Jews after they had been defeated, which has had the paradoxical outcome that the repeated Israeli victories over the decades have emboldened the Israeli leadership, so they have been less likely to come to the negotiating table. He also emphasizes the collective memory of the Holocaust as a profound factor in Israeli society and the pro-Israel lobby in the U.S., both of which embolden Israel's hawkish parties and make the Israelis less likely to negotiate a two-state solution. And secondly, Lustig, who once was a proponent of the two-state solution, now says that it's a distraction from reality. He argues that there is, and has long been, just one state between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. The pursuit of a two-state solution, he posits, is an unrealizable dream, when the real need is to push for equal rights and citizenship for all people living in this territory, which is effectively one state. All of this is, as he puts it, a paradigm shift. Borrowing the language of the history of science, and Thomas Kuhn in particular, he talks about the fundamental structures of how we look at the world. If we replace the paradigm of a two-state solution with a new paradigm, that of a one-state reality, It totally changes the way that we look at the conflict, the questions we ask, and the kinds of resolutions we might strive towards. Again, not everyone is going to agree with Ian's analysis, but I hope that the book and our podcast about it today will help generate conversations about Israel, the Palestinians, and the way we look at the future of the region in historical context. Listen in as we dive into how we might think about the paradigm of a two-state solution in historical perspective 
and the ways in which history matters when we look at issues in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and beyond. Thanks so much for listening in. Hi, Ian. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. I think that your book is really a fundamental piece for thinking about the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and what might come in the future. And so I'm really excited to dive into this big question of whether or not a two-state solution is still possible. What is the history of it, how we got to today, and what that tells us about the future. I guess in in a lot of ways, the key issue that we're going to dive into here is thinking about the relationship between the historical developments and really what is, uh, you know, what might happen. One of the things that really has struck me both studying and teaching and looking at the history of Israel and Palestine is the way in which we can see this conflict over the past hundred years, perhaps more depending on how we define it. It's an arena where things are constantly changing, but where there are a lot of factors that have actually stayed surprisingly stable. And one of them actually is the notion of a, so to speak, two-state solution, which is rather to say the idea of partition. You know, the idea of divvying up or dividing up the territory in some fashion to give a different territory to a different people. Uh, We actually had an episode last year with Ari Dubnov and uh, Laura Robson about the way in which partition, in a way, it had a moment in the early mid-20th century, but we see that it persists, you know, in many ways, especially in terms of Oslo, the idea of a two-state solution. So we can kind of trace out from the 1930s and the Peel Commission to the present, the way that people have said that all we have to do is to divide up the territory, but at the same time, the whole situation has changed so radically in so many ways. So maybe I think a good way to get us started is if you want to say briefly a quick word about when we look at the history of the idea of a two-state solution from the 1930s, basically over the course of almost a century, what has changed and what has stayed the same when we think about this idea of a two-state solution and as we begin to think about whether or not it still is a feasible possibility? Well, it's, it's not easy to be brief about that question. There's a lot of dimensions to it. From the point of view of Zionism, the two-state solution question is dividing Palestine into two states, an Arab state and a Jewish state, is the largest, most divisive question facing the movement, partly because it implied how much territory would be involved in the Jewish state. It only was really after 1967 that the idea of a two-state solution became very, very prominent on the Arab side. But it's almost an arithmetical logic once you assume that there are two peoples in the land and neither of them is going to be removed. The idea of dividing the land makes a lot of sense, especially if there is uh, historical patterns of dense populations of the two in different parts. One of the things that we have to keep in mind, however, is that just because an idea remains prominent doesn't mean that it's remaining prominent because it's actually accessible and attainable. Sometimes an idea is made prominent because it's useful for the sides for it to be prominent, even though it can't be attained or isn't even something that the sides want to attain. For example, to go back to the late 20s and early 30s, when successive Zionism was quite questionable, the question of some kind of binational formula or a parity formula that would allow Zionism to grow, but within an overall Arab state or a mixed state became something that Ben-Gurion supported. 
Right now, it sounds odd to read Ben-Gurion's speeches in that period when he talks favorably about parity and about binationalism. But when you look closer, you see that he was only saying that because the idea of it being attainable was useful as long as he didn't have the power to strive for a Jewish state. And he thought that would take a few more years and a lot more Jewish immigrants, which by the mid-1930s he got and never turned back from the idea of a Jewish state. So what's really changed now is that those who argue for a two-state solution, almost all of them are very well aware that there's no path to a negotiated two-state solution as there used to be. That is, there's no constellation of political interests that can be identified that would sustain itself in a winning coalition on both sides simultaneously to achieve a negotiated solution on that basis. However, those people who are advocating it have a reason why it's too important to treat it as if it's attainable to abandon it. That's true of those who haven't been able to satisfy emotionally themselves with the idea that, okay, the future of Jewish life in the country in the long run is going to be in one state. They just can't accept that. Or they really don't want to face the difficult problems of democratization and equality with Arabs that would be entailed by admitting that there's not a two-state solution available. And of course, the Biden administration is facing the same problem. They know that there's no way to negotiate a two-state solution now, but it's so safe politically to say that that's what they're for, and therefore we're just going to wait and help things along toward maybe getting that solution, because they have bigger fish to fry. And they they don't really care that much if they're consolidating a long-term apartheid in in Israel-Palestine. That's not as important to them as passing the COVID relief bill and not bothering their, and not experiencing the political costs of facing up to the absence of that option. Yeah. So I think that what's kind of interesting here is that what we see is kind of two developments over the course of a century. On the one hand, the idea of partition has been around basically since the Peel Commission in 1937 and, you know, the partition plan and so on and so forth. But what you're saying is that in terms of the actual participants on the ground, right, you know, the British, later the UN, these are kind of outside forces trying to figure out how to resolve conflict. But what you're saying is that the question of the extent to which people are willing to engage with the idea of a two-state solution actually has more to do with the power dynamics, where the question of accepting a two-state solution, for instance, like you said, around 1967, changes because people realize that Israel is here to stay to some extent. Let's also make a distinction here between a solution and a pretty picture. The pretty picture of two states living in peace next to each other with a Jewish minority in the Palestinian state, an Arab minority in the Jewish state, and some kind of refugees on the Arab side agree that they'll limit their homecoming to the West Bank and Gaza, and Jews limit their homecoming to uh, inside the Green Line. That's a, that's a very pretty picture. And there are, it's one of many. You can actually draw a pretty picture of a one person, one vote, or of 18 cantons or of a federation or a confederation with Jordan, Palestine, and Israel. There are many pretty pictures that can be generated, and there's a reason to generate them, but they're not solutions. A solution is a pretty picture or prettier than the present, and you know a way to get there that's feasible, a political path, a way that the interests of enough groups would lead them 
to that solution in a way that generates strategies and tactics to achieve it. That's what's gone. The pretty picture still remains. It used to be when the path to it was available that that pretty picture served a progressive purpose that enhanced prospects for peace and justice and democracy and as much equality as possible. But once it became so implausible as it is now to achieve a negotiated path toward that, then the pretty picture, the allegiance to that pretty picture and mistaking it for a solution actually has a counter effect. It has a very baleful effect because it serves the interests of those who think that the current situation of no political representation to Palestinians, complete power in the hands of Jews who don't have to defend it as an apartheid system because they can always say it's just temporary, that is the function right now of adherence to the two-state Kennedy picture as if it is a solution is to serve the interests of those silent apartheidists, I call them. Yeah, I mean, I think the burning question here in many ways, and, and it's tied in fundamentally with, with the way in which the book is framed, right? You know, paradigm lost, is that you have outlined and, and you've begun to say a bit here about the ways in which a certain proposal, right? A certain kind of set of ideas, like you said, a pretty picture of what the future might look like became kind of hegemonic. It became hegemonic over the discourse, over the debate surrounding the question of how to resolve the conflict in Israel-Palestine. And that in many ways, we have perhaps moved out of that orbit because of the developments of the past 25 years or so. With this in mind, a quick word about what do you mean when you talk about this idea that it was a paradigm and we no longer have access to that paradigm? And ultimately, what does this mean in terms of the question of whether or not a two-state solution, so to speak, is still possible today? for which it sounds that you are fairly pessimistic about the possibility for that. I'm certain that that although it's possible for there eventually to be two states in Palestine and Israel, it won't come about through negotiations between Israel and Palestinians. It might come about, for example, as the Irish Republic came about, which was a partition of the United Kingdom. But how did that happen? Britain ruled Ireland as a colony for hundreds of years. In 1800, it annexed Ireland. It annexed Ireland, made, it changed the name of the country to the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. After 30 years of struggle, some Irish Catholics got political representation. After 80 years of struggle, the Irish mobilized enough in British politics to become the bellwether, the focus of the Irish question in British politics, who could make or break many governments. And by the end of World War I, after an intifada, essentially, you got an Irish state in part of Ireland. So the two-state solution, as it were, which is not completely you know, implemented even yet, or not, it's still dynamic, came 120 years after annexation, after it became a one state, one vote per person, uh, actually for men. So I don't rule out in the far future, that there could be two states in Palestine. But that's not to see it as a solution. That's to see as what we have here is a one-state reality. And when I talk about the paradigm, what a paradigm is in science, whether it's social science or natural science, is that it tells you what the stuff of the world is like, what ontology is like, what is real. And the two-state solution paradigm 
communicated that what's real, the state of Israel within the Green Line, and then territories that it holds next to it in their land of Israel or in Palestine, which are not part of the state, if that is real, then it's natural to think then what becomes of those territories is not necessarily the same thing as what becomes of Israel. And how people are treated in those territories is not the same question as how people are treated in Israel. But most states in the world are governed in ways that all the people within them are not governed equally, and all the areas within them are not governed in the same rules. If you see the land between the river and the Mediterranean as one state that's in which the populations and districts are ruled differently by different rules, which is very normal, then all of a sudden, that ontological reality that it is one state, not two, leads to a host of new implications, just as really any reversal in science from one paradigm to the absence of a paradigm or to a new paradigm completely changes the questions that are important to ask. Whether you see gravity as a some kind of mysterious attraction between bodies, as Newton did, or whether you see it as a reflection of the curvature of space, leads to enormous differences, including the atomic bomb, for example. It's just impossible to count how many differences there are. This is true, I'm trying to argue in my book, if you look at it that way, why all of a sudden, for two-staters, Settlements, for example, one more settlement in the West Bank is always a catastrophe. It's always something to jump up and down about. E1, especially the area near Jerusalem, which would be, if settled, it said, will permanently separate the West Bank into two parts, thereby making a two state solution impossible. But if it's already impossible, then another set of settlements, no matter where they are, don't matter. That's not important from a progressive political point of view, looking forward to peace and democracy and equality among Jews and Palestinians. What's important, for example, might be that there's more room for Arabs to live in the Galilee because more Jews are living in the West Bank. What's important is discrimination wherever it exists inside of the areas ruled by Israel. The Trump plan, for example, which was ridiculous in most ways, and I've written about that, but when it says Jerusalem is a United City and it's the capital of the country, well, actually, that's not something to object to. That's something to welcome because it means that in the long run, all the people who live between the river and the sea will have access to all of Jerusalem as their capital. And the 330,000 Palestinians who live in the whole city can now be expected to vote in municipal elections, which would completely transform life in Jerusalem, and to vote in national elections, which will also have a major impact. So I could go on, I do in the book, about how flipping doing that gestalt shift between seeing the country as if it were Israel and not Israel, as opposed to seeing it as all Israel, but things are ruled castes and areas are ruled differently, completely changes the agenda of research, the tactics and strategies available for struggle, and the rationales for one kind of political mobilization or another, just as the change of a paradigm in science changes the agenda for research changes what needs to be measured, changes what seem interesting in problems that no longer seem interesting. But it's very difficult in politics to give up the same kind of fundamental assumptions that support a paradigm, that support political projects in politics, because both 
paradigms and fundamental ideologies support communities in their ability over time to coordinate action on an agenda of problems that they believe in. And what I am, what we are up against now is a reality that has changed long before the ideologies and ideas have been able to catch up with those realities. That's typical of politics. It's typical of all institutions that they change slower than the conditions that they were designed to cope with. Yeah. I mean, I think that what you're getting at here, and I think that this ties into some of the major themes of the podcast, is about how people change their point of view. And what is it that leads people to radically shift their perspective on an issue? And this can apply to politics, this can apply to social issues, this can apply even to climate change. You know, how do you get somebody who is a climate denier to understand the reality of, of climate change and change the paradigm through which they see the world? And so one of the questions that I'm always thinking about is what is the role of history in terms of shaping how we look at these kinds of issues? You know, as you talk about a shifting perspective on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the possibility for two states, in what ways does looking at history and having a deep historical perspective help us to reassess our understanding of the possibility of a two-state solution? Well, that question is very good, and it links two streams of work that I've done uh, in my professional career, one on history and historiography, and one on hegemony. How do hegemonic beliefs, beliefs that are taken for granted as true and therefore not open to dispute on the basis of evidence, but how do they change? And let me start with that and then go to the history question. What I argued in the books that I've written about it, in order to overthrow a hegemonic belief, and it's true in science as well as politics, you need three things. You need a gross discrepancy between what the belief says and what the world is doing, not just a minor You need something really grossly discrepant. But hegemonic beliefs are very strong, and they can overcome, they can resist that. It's not just evidence, even if it's overwhelming. You also need new ideas, new ways to look at the world that are more comfortable than they would be by looking at them with the old ideas, so that you're not just smashed in the face and you can't look at the new reality and think of it as something that's consistent with who you are and who you want to be. And third, because that's not enough either, you need one more thing. You need ideological and political entrepreneurs who see their own future interests as achievable by peddling these new ideas as answers to the realities, the stubborn realities that the old hegemonic belief can't, so you can't handle. Now, that is a long time in coming to produce a counter-hegemonic project like that. We have, in this context, the gross discrepancies. The realities of life in Israel-Palestine are completely contradictory to the idea of a two-state solution paradigm. Gradually, ideas are coming to the fore, which can, and here's where history comes in, which can draw on different ideas of what actually, uh, of what was available in history, because history is not one thing that happened. It's a whole set of, of ways of looking at the past. And one way that has become dominant is, the, is in Zionism is the idea that Zionism means a Jewish state, but that you can go back to the origins of Zionism, as Dmitry Shumsky and others have, to see that that was not, even in Ben-Gurion's thinking, until the 1930s, the only way Zionism could be achieved. 
the fundamentals of Zionism were that there should be a large, secure, and prosperous Jewish community in the land of Israel. How it would be ruled is a secondary question. Now, when you look at it that way, and you look at the principles that Weizmann and Ben-Gurion swore by, which is that Jews did not want to dominate anyone in Palestine, and they didn't want to be dominated by anyone. That is what was said over and over and over again. Now, if we can retrieve those historical points of view, then it will be easier to legitimize a reality that will open doors for political entrepreneurs to start to see their routes to success, not through dominating Arabs, but by liberating them. In the same way that we now see that democratic politicians who in the United States in the 1800s and the early 20th century got elected in one elections and one control of the government by oppressing, lynching, and discriminating against blacks, now can only be elected by turning blacks out in large numbers to vote, by dowing uh, black candidates with power, and electing black candidates. That is the only way liberal whites in America can share power. That's the kind of change uh, that brought about women getting the vote. That's the way that Irish got their rights. That's the way Arabs will eventually get their rights. You know, I consider that there are three kinds of time in politics. When we look at MSNBC and Fox News and CNN every day, we're in sports time. Who's winning? Who's losing? What tactic are they using? What were they intended? Did they just make a mistake? Is our team up or down today? That's sports time. That's pretty much almost always irrelevant. Then there's strategic time. Two to five years, sometimes 10 years, when you can actually try to plan a project and arrange things so maybe you'll achieve it. Then there's geological time, generations, where unanticipated consequences trump almost all plans, and many plans lead to the opposite of what they intended. And that kind of thinking about is, is very obvious if you look at historically how things came about, including how Zionism came, became what it did. It was totally a set of unintended consequences. If you look at the blueprints that Zionists had, that they don't look anything like the Israel that, that developed. The kibbutz, the JNF, none of those were originally part of the Zionist idea. They came about as a result of a struggle with Arabs that no one anticipated. So my view is that history has a role by producing ingredients for new ways to interpret the present. You're talking about these developments on a number of, of levels, how historical developments contribute to the change in which ideas are the most powerful ones in a society, the ones that dominate politics, for instance whether we're talking about American politics or Israeli politics or anything else. But part of what I'm interested in thinking about here is about how people having an informed historical perspective contributes to the shaping of their own political ideas. What is it about looking in a clear-eyed perspective at what has taken place in the territory controlled by the state of Israel over the past 54 years, for instance, right, from 67 until the present, how is it that looking at that history and having a deep historical perspective, first of all, how did it contribute to the emergence of the hegemonic idea of a two-state solution, right, to the paradigm of a two-state solution? And at the same time, how is it that today, looking deeply and closely at the history, what has taken place over the past couple of generations, helps us to reassess and look with, with a clear perspective 
on where we are and what are the possibilities for the future, as you said, to lead to new paradigms. Now, no one would quarrel who is sane with the historical reality of the Holocaust, the murder of six million Jews by the Nazis. No one questions that, who is of any intellectual interest at all. But there is a big dispute implicitly, if not explicitly, over how it should be remembered. How should it be classified? And what I do in my research is to point out that in Israel, there have been at least four major ways to look back at the Holocaust and construct it. Uh, For example, originally, right afterward, it was mainly seen as proof of the correctness of Zionism, that the Jews who died, died because they weren't Zionists. And the Zionists had the right idea all along. And to fight was what was necessary. But there was another rival way to see the Holocaust. And that was as something that was a source of Gentile guilt that would be a wasting asset because the the Gentiles wouldn't feel guilty for very long. And so now we have to get reparations from Germany and use the Holocaust to do it. That was a construction that was very strong in the early 1950s and a little later than that. Then there was the view of the Holocaust, partly associated with the Eichmann trial, that was it was a crime against humanity. And it was all these other things, but it was also a crime against humanity. But finally, the view of the Holocaust that won out was that what I call the template for Jewish life that Begin cultivated and it started to evolve after the Six-Day War and the, and the 73 War. And that meant that all you have to know about being a Jew is the Holocaust. And it, it's always 1938 and Iran is Germany. That idea, which has taken tremendous hold of Israelis, and Jews elsewhere, whether they are to feel like it's always, I said, 1930 or Gentiles are always about to change into uh, Nazis. And certainly the Palestinians should be seen in this way and no risks should be taken whatsoever when dealing with Gentiles. This extreme view is that became ascendant. A good historical grounding allows you to see that that view is not reality. It's one view of history that is having a massive effect on the ability of Israelis to entertain sensible compromises with their adversaries, and which did that, and which has ruined, I think, ruined the possibility of the most single most promising route to a negotiated solution, and now put people into a new situation where there are other possible avenues towards something better, but not nearly as straightforward, and which will take a lot more time to achieve. Finally, I'd say that by looking at the unintended consequences of the Six-Day War, uh, which brought Israel into contact with a problem that Zionism had effectively oppressed, is what to do about the parts of the land of Israel that haven't been liberated. That became a non-issue. That was a non-issue in Israeli politics in the 1960s, even though it had caused virtual civil war before independence and threatened to do so before 1956. That difficult problem was unleashed again in Zionism and in Israeli politics as an unintended consequence of the Six-Day War and the acquisition of the West Bank and Gaza. And that's a tragedy. One of the things that historical understanding can do is to sensitize people to the enormous stakes in the long run that may attend wars. You may go to war because you think there's something specific in the immediate time frame, in the strategic or sports time frame that absolutely must be done without realizing that when you look at the 15, 20, and 30-year time frame, something absolutely overwhelming could happen that makes all those immediate calculations irrelevant. 
whether you're thinking about the Tonkin Gulf resolution, you're thinking about what prompted Israel to strike first in the Six-Day War and that not immediately leave, whether you're thinking about what brought us into Iraq or Obama into Libya, almost always the same. The long-term consequences of many, many wars dwarf in direction and in substance and scale the putative reasons for the war. As you're talking here about unintended consequences and about long-term effects, you know, it's making me think about some of the other things that you're arguing about in the book relating to changing perspectives on the Israeli side and also on the Palestinian side about what peace might look like and what is necessary for peace. You've written about the so-called Iron Wall strategy, which would, by defeating the Palestinians, you know, this is the idea put forward by Jabotinsky and his successors, that by repeatedly defeating the Arabs, later the Palestinians, you would beat them down so that they would no longer pose a threat and that they would then come to the negotiating table. But the actually the opposite happened, which is that the repeated victories of the, of the Israelis actually made the Israelis less willing to come to the table. And, and this, I think, again, is where you see that we need to understand the unintended consequences and also just how history has brought us to this point, and in many ways sets the stage for what's possible to come next. Yes, well, thanks for that capsule uh, uh, explanation of what is a, a little bit of a complicated argument. The Iron Wall was Zionism's, I would say, brilliant response to a seemingly impossible problem that it faced, it came to realize it was facing the 1920s, which was that in the long run, it needed peace with an Arab world that it couldn't possibly defeat, but in the short run, and even medium run, it had nothing to offer the Arabs. So the only solution was to develop a military capacity to completely defeat all the Arab attempts to end Zionism, not with the idea that the Arabs were evil or that they were doing something that Jews wouldn't have done had they been in their place, but because this was a tragic situation and Arabs would eventually have to learn that they're not going to get everything that they may think they deserve, but that when they finally learn that, Israel, Jews will be ready to compromise with them. And as you pointed out, there was an unanticipated historical outcome because Jabotinsky, who argued that Arabs and Jews were both normal peoples, didn't realize that although he said a normal people like the Arabs eventually compromise when they lose generation after generation, didn't realize that the Jews as a normal people, if they militarily win generation after generation, will expand their demands and come to see their enemies as worthless and as inconsiderable threat, nothing that prompts them to make compromises. There's one other very large unanticipated consequence that will be of importance to American listeners. And that is that after the Holocaust, especially American Jews were very sensitive to the idea that they hadn't done enough. So this time when Israel's existence was at stake, they were going to form a, a political lobby and not be afraid to put pressure on the American government on behalf of Israel. And APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, was set up and it has become so effective and so that it has actually exercised a kind of hammerlock on American foreign policy toward Israel. So much so that instead of helping Israel, it has actually prevented the United States from doing things which would have helped Israel 
come to a negotiated solution with the Arabs. And that's been a tragedy. It's been an unanticipated result of an, a superabundance of power, an over-success of that lobbying effort because of the way American politics is organized, giving any single-issue movement in foreign policy an inordinate veto over that area in foreign policy. And I quote from George Washington's farewell address in which he anticipated precisely that one area that the Constitution was opening as a vulnerability was if some group in the United States developed a special attachment to a foreign power, either a hatred or a love, that there would be very little way for the American system to resist that. Yeah, I think that part of what you're engaging with here is thinking about some of the major factors that caused the two-state possibility. On the one hand, to come to the fore in the 90s with the Oslo Agreement, but then ultimately not to bear fruit. And I think that part of what is interesting here is to understand what it means for the paradigm to shift. What does it mean for the two-state paradigm to come to the forefront in the 90s? What are the forces that were causing that to happen in the first place? And then what were the forces then that have caused it to fall away as a possibility? You've talked about some of the long-term developments here. You know, I was wondering if you can talk a bit more, not just about how as individuals people can shift their perspective, but about how this manifests itself on a larger political scale. It was not inevitable that the two-state solution would fail. There were real chances for it to succeed. I think from an historical point of view, if I had to put a number on it, I'd say that the likelihood of success looking forward from about the early 1980s was about 30 to 35%. A crucial opportunity, the most crucial opportunity, was in the early 1990s. And I was privileged to be a part of discussions in the White House with President George H.W. Bush about how to deal with the Intifada and with Shamir and the Palestinians. And I made an argument in that meeting, which was accepted by the administration, and it led, immediately preceded Secretary of State James Baker's speech to AIPAC, in which he said Israel had to give up the dream of greater Israel, and the passage by the administration of restrictions on loan guarantees for settlements in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. Those, George H.W. Bush came under tremendous fire for those moves. But as a result, approximately 30,000 Russian immigrants in Israel shifted their votes to get more money for housing, shifted their votes to the left. And that brought Rabin to power and a chance to actually achieve a two-state solution. Secret talks between a Labour Party government could be brought to power with American pressure, with American, correct American policy. Secret talks would lead to an, uh, the possibility of an agreement. But I also warned that there would be assassination attempts against Israeli leaders by extreme right-wing elements in Israel, just as there had been against de Gaulle when he tried to get France out of Algeria. And I warned through radio and television interviews and newspaper articles that more protection should be given to Israeli leaders and that they should very quickly impose a two-state solution rather than waiting and dragging out through confidence-building measures, which would give rejectionists on each side the opportunities to defeat the two-state solution. That advice was not followed. 
There were other mistakes made. I think Barack made a gigantic mistake. Clinton made mistakes at Camp David. The Palestinians also made mistakes. uh, But that was the gigantic mistake that uh, the Robin Perez government did not move more swiftly uh, in the face of, for example, the murder in the Cave of the Patriarchs by Baruch Goldstein to essentially declare a state of emergency, confront the settlers, and do what de Gaulle did in Algeria and what Churchill wanted to do in Northern Ireland in 1914 and, and solve the problem once and for all, impose a two-state solution, essentially. And that was not done. Yeah. I mean, I think that part of what's interesting here, and I'm just fascinating hearing kind of your first-person perspective of the events themselves, but the possibility for a two-state solution in the 1990s, the development of Oslo and its aftermath, what's kind of interesting about it, um, especially from the point of view of 2021, is that it has become history. That there is in many ways, uh, I mean, this, this is actually very clear, that there is just as much time from 1967 to 1994, a period of 27 years, as there has from 1994 to the present. I mean, it's amazing in so many ways to see how something which is in some ways very much still a contemporary historical event. It's the idea of a two-state solution is still being discussed in the public sphere, perhaps with less of a possibility than, than it was 20 years ago, but people are still talking about it. But in reality, Oslo is history. You know, it's something that happened a generation ago. You know, my students in my classes, you know, for them, this is before they were born for the most part. You know, um, you know same thing almost with 9-11, you know, for many of them. But the point being, it's like we need to be able to look back on those events and look and think about them as something that is now part of history, even though it is, you know, at least for the two of us, you know, within our lifetimes. So the question is, how do we learn from this history and this process and this dialogue of to what extent is an idea from the past? Is it part of history or is it still part of the present? Jason, I'd like to make two points about that. One is, again, I was in the West Bank for quite a bit of time during the Intifada in 1988 and 1991, the first Intifada. And I saw what was happening there firsthand. And I also met dozens of researchers who were studying it. And I then, in 1993, wrote an article for a professional journal, World Politics, reviewing 10 books on the Intifada that had been written by the people I had observed. And those books all depicted the Intifada in somewhat different ways. Now, the Intifada occurred once, but in a sense, it occurred many times because what is historically known as the Intifada was known through the reports of these scholars and journalists. So history is not what happens. It's what comes to be believed happened, and that can change. There's a thought experiment I'd like you to do along with your listeners. And that has to do with the ontological point I made. What is Israel? Is the green line real or not? Is it one state from the river to the sea, or is it one state from the green line to the sea and then another other territories? Think about this. From 1948 to 1967, Arab citizens of Israel lived in Israel. That was 19 years. For most of those years, Arabs lived under military occupation. That is, a military government ruled Arab areas from 1948 to 1966. In the West Bank and Gaza, Palestinian Arabs have been living under military, Israeli military rule for 53 years. So in the West Bank and Gaza, Arabs have been living under the effective, and I include Gaza here, 
the effective rule of Israeli military for 53 years. Arabs who live inside the Green Line have been living under Israeli effective rule for 72 years. What's the difference? 53 years, 72 years. The territories are, whether it's the Galilee or the West Bank or Gaza, are equally under the reality of the Israeli state. And as time goes by, the fact that uh, an Arab in Nazareth has been living under Israeli rule for 19 years longer than the Arab who lives in Nablus means less and less and less. What's the difference between 53 years and 72 years? Right. The history of the past 27 years is only one part of that broader trajectory. That's right. And it's a new kind of history being made now. It's harder to see because of leftovers on both sides, including, for example, the Palestinian anti-normalization movement. The anti-normalization movement is a very complicated topic. We might not want to go deeply into it, but I believe that even Palestinians are going to have to rethink just how much they want to separate from all Israelis in the context of a political reality in which their future means emancipating themselves and gaining political rights within the Israeli political system. Even if eventually they secede from it, they first have to become powerful within it. That will mean seeking alliances with Israeli groups, not just Israelis who will follow their orders as part of a resistance organization, which is the stance that the anti-normalization movement has taken. So my position develops critiques of Israeli progressives who still use the demographic argument because I think they're serving the interests of the silent apartheid who are only pretending to pursue a two-state solution. At the same time, I think parts of the Palestinian anti-normalization movement are serving the interests of those silent apartheid also by postponing the day when Jews and Palestinian Arabs will form the kind of emancipatory alliances that alone can produce the kind of country that either group will ultimately be happy living in. Are you kind of getting at the idea that the continued dream of a two-state solution actually helps to fortify the reality of the existence of a single state and the, the eventual annexation of the West Bank? Yes to the former, no to the latter, because it's already been annexed. Annexation has occurred already if that means permanent control. What hasn't occurred is legal extension of equal rights. And annexation, which is really just means changing the rules slightly to favor Jews a little more in the way they rule over Arabs. But if annexation, I personally am for annexation, meaning the actual imposition of Israeli sovereignty, which hasn't even been done in East Jerusalem. People think it has been done, but it hasn't. What Israel did in East Jerusalem was expand the boundaries of the Israeli city of Jerusalem, of Yushalayim, thereby giving Arabs who live there citizenship in the city, but not in the country of Israel. That's why Arabs in expanded Jerusalem, 330,000, don't have rights to vote in the Knesset election, only in the municipal election. The Palestinian Authority prevents them from doing that. And so, and again, I am a critic of the Palestinian Authority for living in the past, as if it's still resisting occupation when it should be embracing integration as a way to leverage Palestinian numbers for political power. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that what you've been getting at over the course of, of our conversation is the way in which people should come to terms with the reality of what has taken place over the, the course of the past you know, number of generations and especially over the past few decades. 
And the question is, so what next, right? If people come to terms with and understand that a two-state solution, you know, perhaps may happen in the future, but that's not what we're living with in the present, how does that, like you said, lead us towards a new paradigm of looking at the history, a new way of looking at the present and the future too? Well, first of all, there's a lot to do. And the answer is not always so clear. And it's not necessarily very encouraging because whatever you do next, there are a lot of nexts after that, decades and generations of struggle. It takes a lot longer to democratize a country when the problem is integrating a group that's always been excluded than it takes to democratize a country that's an autocracy and you just flip it into being a democracy like in Poland or in Hungary. It takes a lot longer to integrate groups like women or blacks or Catholics or Jews who've been excluded for generations to bring them in. So that's a long road, but there are many things right now that can be done. And one is to stop using the demographic argument for the reasons that I said. It serves the interests of those who benefit by Israelis believing they can't live with Arabs. Another thing is to organize East Jerusalem Arabs to vote in municipal elections and protect them against the intimidation coming from the Palestinian Authority that prevents that, because that would have led to a moderate liberal mayor of Jerusalem that would have transformed life in the city and set a model for Jewish-Arab cooperation for the future. Another thing that academics in particular and intellectuals need to do is to look very closely at the writings of those who still advocate a two-state solution. One of the things I do in my book is focus on some books by Israeli authors and American Jewish authors, American authors who admit explicitly that they do not believe a two-state solution is possible, but they advocate for it because it's impossible to sacrifice the benefits of pretending that it is possible. Because if we stop the pretense, then we'll have to face up to the question of democratization, and that'll be the end of a Jewish state as opposed to a democratic state. Now, exposing the silent apartheidists, those who actually favor Jewish domination of Palestinians permanently, but don't say so. Instead, they say, someday in the future, we are willing to have a two-state solution. We will do what we can to preserve options for it, but we don't know how to get there now. But that is a false deceiving and fundamentally more disruptive message than an out-and-out annexationist message, which at least opens the door for a more productive kind of struggle, a struggle for equality within one recognized state. So there's a lot of very immediate next steps. They aren't going to produce a solution, but they're going to help incubate a new kind of situation within which Solutions will become apparent. Visions will become more natural. I would lastly try to suggest that most people, and this is another thing that the paradigm switch encourages, most people imagine that a solution comes about through negotiations between Jews and Arabs in which they'll come to a compromise. And they can't imagine why Jews and Arabs would ever compromise on a one-state solution, how Jews would ever just give the vote to Arabs, and why would Arabs accept that. But if you look at how women got the, uh, their political rights in all the, the leading countries, how blacks got their rights in the United States to the extent that they have them, it didn't come about through blacks and whites sitting down and negotiating and arriving at a negotiated solution. And it didn't come about that women and men negotiated and the men said, you know, you're right. 
we will give you political rights now. You've convinced us. It came about through a series of incremental politics made space strange bedfellows, changing alliances and realignments out of changing interests. That's how change occurs. And that takes a long time. That's why Democrats now, as I've said before, can't get elected nationally without black votes when 70, 80 years ago, they couldn't get elected without suppressing the black population in this country. As I think about these issues and also think about the fact that that we are wrapping up, I think that we've spent a lot of time talking about the specifics of Israel and Palestine and about the development of a two-state solution as a concept, ways in which it has kind of stuck around, perhaps may not match up with the existing reality. But I want us to perhaps focus on this idea of a paradigm shift, like one more time as we finish up and thinking about how do people's views change? What are the factors that lead towards the way in which people change the way that they see the world? For me as a historian, as an academic, I'm always kind of thinking about this question of how is it that, that studying the past changes the way that we see things? I think about teaching and scholarship as a transformative project, right, of changing the way in which I look at things by looking at historical issues closely, changing the way that students look at the world by exposing them to different perspectives and deep historical knowledge. And so the question is, like, as you're considering this process of paradigms shifting, in what ways do you see that studying the past and understanding things like the history of Zionism, understanding the history of the conflict, but also in any number of other issues. You know, how is it that history matters in terms of contributing to paradigm shifts that take place, whether for individuals or for a society on a larger scale? Well, let's take the term occupation. From an historical point of view, what does it mean to end the occupation? Because if we look at J Street, for example, where are these people going to go? These are people who are changing especially the lower ranks, the students who fill the ranks of J Street, not the big funders, but the lower ranks, they are changing their views. What's changing it? Well, partly it's the stubborn realities that that the two-state solution slogans they've been using become less and less useful in interpreting daily life. And they find themselves in impossible arguments with critics because they don't have answers for those arguments. So that's one way that that it changed. But another way to do it, by using history to flesh out beliefs they have in a new way. So when you say end the occupation, people usually think you end the occupation by removing a military force from a territory that it controlled. And that is one way to end an occupation. The United States ended its occupation of Germany that way. Israel stopped occupying the Sinai Peninsula. It's effectively still occupying the Gaza Strip, if you ask me, and it's in occupying Golan and the West Bank also. But another way to end an occupation is the way that Britain ended the occupation of Ireland after hundreds of years of colonial rule, which is by annexing it. The way the American South was occupied by the Union Army, and that occupation ended by its integration, reintegration into the Union. Reconstruction was overthrown, and it took God-forsaken an amount of time for that to change the country. But that's how occupations can end that way, too. So I'm still animated, and I want my audiences to see that even when they change their paradigm to a one-state reality, they're not giving up 
the demand to end the occupation is just going to be ended in a different way. And that historically, you can learn and become optimistic, even if you won't see the solution in your lifetime. That's, that's how big a problem this is. What the processes of democratization that involve integrating formerly despised and hated and dis excluded groups, how long does it take to do that? It takes a long time. When you face up to that reality historically and you give up sports time analysis and strategic time analysis to solve this problem, you can be reinvigorated in your connection to the world. And that reinvigoration can lead you to learn more, to fill out the implications, explore the implications of that new way of thinking. Of the, and, and you will find it to be a liberating way of thinking, even though it means giving up cherished beliefs. All right. Well, thanks so much, Ian. This has been a really, I think, important conversation, a really, really exciting dive into the specifics of the history, but also kind of what we learned from it in a much larger way. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Jason. And thanks to you for listening to this conversation with Ian Lustig. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.